Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 10th, 2022. I hope you're all well. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco, the real heart of California, Los Angeles, with its small movie business, thinks it's important. But of course, compared to Silicon Valley, it isn't. Uh, on February the 10th, lots of little pieces of news that I'm going to try and put together, maybe turn into a kind of movie. Some headlines about the Olympics, which personally, I have to admit, I find incredibly boring. I know not everybody does, uh, but there is nothing more boring than figure skating at the Winter Olympics, but the politics are interesting. Um, the BBC asks, why are the games so controversial in Beijing? Uh, I don't think that's hard to figure out. Um, the New York Times uh, op-ed writer asks, in the so-called genocide Olympics, are we all complicit? Very much of a New York Times kind of thing to ask. Um, we've done a lot of shows in this show about the complicity of the Chinese in uh, ethnic cleansing and other terrible crimes against um, human rights. We had Amelia Pang, for example, on recently, very popular show, uh, uh, talking about her book Made in China on the slave labor camps that represent an important piece of the Chinese economy. Meanwhile, in parallel, lots of stories about the Olympics, uh, not the Olympics, that was a Freudian era, the the Oscars. So we have the Olympics and the Oscars. And as always with the Oscar announcements, lots of snubs, complaints about whether, uh, in particular, a brilliant film I thought called Passing has been snubbed. I thought that was rather disgraceful. Not a lot of comments on snubbing Chinese people, though, more on the snubs against African-Americans. Uh, Seth Rogen apparently doesn't get why Hollywood is so invested in Oscar viewership. I don't think anyone really cares about the Oscars, which makes it a peculiar, almost surreal sideshow, perhaps reflecting the decline of Hollywood and the Oscars. Uh, perhaps the only interesting story to me was Drive My Car, brilliant Japanese being included in the best picture. Of course, it's following in from Parasite. Uh, uh, which won the Oscars in 2019, the first non-American uh, Korean film winning it. Another brilliant film. Uh, meanwhile, lots of headlines about changes in the movie industry itself. Apparently, Disney is clo closing the gap with Netflix. The streaming business, of course, is turning traditional movie industry and the studios on its head. So all this together, what does it all add up to? Perhaps it adds up to the subject of our uh, conversation today with uh, Eric Schwartzel. He's the movie business correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and he has a really interesting new book out, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Uh, Eric is joining us from Los Angeles, of all places. Uh, Eric, the Olympics, the Oscars, streaming, does it all add up to this new cultural, great Cold War-style cultural battle between the United States and China, or am I missing the point? No, I think, you, I think you're right. It, it is 
sort of there are these cross currents forming. And I think so far, the conversation about US and China has largely been about things like infrastructure, aid, and ideology. But what I was trying to figure out with my book was where does the culture fit in? Where does American soft power play into this? And where does China's efforts at replicating that kind of soft power play into it? And and so the Olympics, whether the ones happening now or the ones that happened 14 years ago in Beijing, those are always sort of a, a really rich opportunity to explore those questions. Um, and same goes with the Oscars, because the Oscars kind of be, have become this annual referendum, frankly, on Hollywood's relevance. Your subtitle, um, Hollywood, China and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, implies that there is a battle or at least a war going on between Hollywood and China. I understand the Chinese bit. But does anyone in Hollywood really care as long as someone signs the checks? And indeed, a lot of your book and and, and your recent writing um, is about Chinese investment in Hollywood. The the, the people in Hollywood, and I I use this word carefully, are whores. They're happy to do business with anyone who pays, aren't they? Well, I, I think that was the initial thought when it came to China, that it was China's turn to be the dumb money that has financed Hollywood films you know, post post Sony and the Japanese who did it in the eighties and nineties, right? And they actually in German in Germany had its turn at things, and and certainly you know there are stories galore of you know just wealthy individuals who want to go to a movie premiere, and so they finance a movie to do so. You know, um, I think there was a sense ten years ago or so that this was China's turn, and what we've actually seen though is that it was part of a part of a larger effort to figure out how China could use culture to sell itself to the world. No, and, and your point about China, I mean, in the book, and you had an, an interesting piece, uh, the review in the LA Times about uh, how China has got the upper hand in Hollywood. You make that case. Um, uh, you you, uh, you make it um, in an interesting uh, uh, piece in the Atlantic. Um, but what about Hollywood? I mean, uh, maybe I'm repeating the question, I apologize, but do they really care, the people in Hollywood? Do they care that China's calling the shots? Um, I mean, what difference does it make whether it's someone in Beijing or someone in New York? You know, you you raise an interesting point um, that is is the word battle, which implies two sides, uh, sort of imprecise. Um, and, and I'm not critical of the subtitle. I'm just curious. No, it's an interesting question. I'm thinking it through. And I, I think that the, the battle in Hollywood might not be as, as consciously against China, but really it's more a battle of corporate interests. And, and maybe this is getting it at your question is that one thing I found time and time again with this book was that it was really about the collision of a Hollywood that is increasingly expected to win the quarter and to focus on keeping shareholders happy and the fiduciary duty toward shareholders and a country that very casually talks about 5,000 years of history and clearly is sort of operating on a longer game plan. So so the question, do, does, does, do Hollywood executives really care? I mean... I think it depends on where you find them. I I realized when I was reporting this book that talking to 
Hollywood executives while they were in the job often meant I would be told excuses like, look, it's a, it's a market reality. What do you want me to do? I have to say though, that the, the tune changes whenever an executive leaves that job and has a bit of distance from it. And I, I can't tell you I've, how many times I saw this kind of transition happen where once an executive was out of the studio system, he or she might say, yeah, you can't help but imagine that we really got played here. But where are the decisions being made in, in even this term Hollywood? I don't even understand what it is. Um, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, their films dominate the Oscars. They increasingly could buy Hollywood instantly if they chose to. When when you talk about Hollywood, uh, in all seriousness, I know you're in Los Angeles and this sort of rather boring rivalry between Northern and Southern California. But, but what exactly is Hollywood these days, Eric? You know, I think it's probably a combination of the five major studios. Who are owned by who? I mean, when you talk about those five studios, who owns them? So Paramount is owned by Viacom CBS. Universal is owned by Comcast, the cable company. Right. Sony Sony is owned by Sony. Uh, Disney is its, is its own thing. And yeah. War- Warner Brothers is owned by Warner Media, which will now be Warner Brother Dis- Warner Brothers Discovery or Warner Media Discovery when this next merger goes through. So all these studios that we talk about being these big giant uh, purveyors of culture are really just small pieces of much larger corporate and how, pies. And I take that they're all part of sort of multinational or American large corporations, pieces of them increasingly insignificant. But how does the the economics of the five big studios compared to the economics of uh, Amazon, Apple, and yeah. Netflix production. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a, ra- it's a rounding error. Um, I mean, these these tech companies, as you said, could just swallow these studios tomorrow. No, no, and- no, but, no, sorry, let me let me clarify my question. Obviously, they yeah. could swallow them tomorrow as a in terms of Amazon e-commerce or. Uh, or, or Apple sale of iPhones. But I'm talking about the a- Apple, Amazon, Netflix investment in movies. How does that compare with the big five studios in Hollywood? I'm, I'm not sure how, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know Netflix is spending more on actual production than just about anyone. Um, Amazon is spending quite a bit. They're acquiring MGM. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big, spend um, so they'll be they'll own one of the the, five, the the big five not one of the big five mgm's been M- mgm's really been shrunken okay. down in the past several years but you know um apple is an interesting case because obviously it has more money than any company on earth but it seems to have been relatively conservative when it comes to hollywood spending i'd say in the aggregate but right. the other thing that's very interesting is that there are now some productions that have grown so big and so expensive that the traditional five Hollywood studios don't want to fund them or can't afford them. And these tech companies can come in and pick them up. And so, and so you're also seeing this just kind of insane price inflation on productions or the prices of acquisitions because the tech companies can bid you know, $25 million to pick up distribution rights for a movie out of Sundance. That's a record 
for any and all Sundance Film Festivals, but what's $25 million to Apple? So it's this very bizarre dynamic. And it's also created this world where even companies as big as, frankly, Comcast seem small by comparison. And that's why over the next year, we're expecting to see even more consolidation and even more Goliaths joining up with Goliaths because with the tech players involved, it just throws everyone's scale out of whack. Well, enough with my pesky questions on the thesis of your book. Let's let's talk about the thesis. Um, you had a nice piece in The Atlantic um, a few days ago, Eric, How China Captured Hollywood. I'm going to read from the first paragraph. In the, in the weeks following the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, a group of Chinese executives traveled to Los Angeles for a crash course in influence. So the Chinese want influence. It's probably not foreign to them. And then you, you follow up. Um, uh, you, you talk about the economics. How, how in, in, at least in your mind, um, are the, have the Chinese tried to buy Hollywood or at least invest significantly in Hollywood? Yeah, it's happened in two. It's happened in two ways. The the first is the the flood of Chinese financing that really has dried up in recent years. But for a while there was not only putting a for sale sign outside of every Hollywood studio, but also just literally funding quite a bit of production. Um, movies, I, mo mo movies, Eric. Give me some movies that they put significant amount of money into. Well, it was mostly through these financing deals. So. So if you go see a movie from Universal, um, sometimes you might be sitting there in the audience and you see, you know, whenever the, the title cards come up, whenever the, it's starting, you might see a company reference called Perfect World. Uh, Perfect World is actually a Chinese company. And it means that Perfect World financing has helped pay for the movie you're about to watch. Same goes for Alibaba. You might see Alibaba occasionally popping up too. But I think the more interesting and frankly, the more influential way that Hollywood, or I'm sorry, that China has subsidized and then therefore influenced Hollywood is through its box office. Because over the past 15 years, China's box office market has grown from being an economic afterthought into the biggest in the world. And it is now sometimes the difference between profit and loss for some of these major Hollywood movies, um, the difference between profit and loss is whether or not they play in Chinese theaters. And so that's going to require making sure that they pass muster with Chinese censors. That was an interesting piece also in Variety from uh, January. Uh, Hollywood's ability to influence uh, its China box office destiny has never been weaker. Um, do you agree? I mean, is Hollywood increasingly relatively powerless in terms of the Chinese market. Yeah, we're in a really weird moment right now because the Chinese box office, I mean, the Chinese authorities, for reasons that are really, frankly, unclear, have not let in a number of big Hollywood titles over the past year. And these are movies that should have gotten in under any other circumstances. Which, which movies in particular? So um, Black Widow is one. Uh, Shang-Chi, the, the Marvel movie. Um, the most recent Spider-Man. These are all movies that I'm are the sure... Are still watching them? I know my daughter spends half her life pirating online movies. Is it easy to pirate this stuff in China? Yes. Yeah, it's easy to pirate everywhere these days. Um, but but still, I mean, the, the theater owners in China want to show these movies. There's a lot of money to be made with them. But over the past year, 
the authorities have not let them in. And I think it's created a degree of uncertainty at the studio level that we haven't seen since the movie started flooding in there in 1994. Eric, is this coming from the top? I mean, I'm not saying that G is ticking or not ticking certain movies saying that the people of China can't watch this. But is this the kind of issue that might come up in the Central Committee in the very highest levels? Or is it, again, borrowing some language from you, a kind of ideological rounding error for the regime? No, I think it's really important. And I think it usually follows a broader shift. So if we see Xi encouraging party leaders to turn inward across China, that usually means that Western titles might have a might have a higher bar to clear. Um, I think you're right. I think it's rare to have a kind of sector-specific decree. Yeah. But I think, imagine you are a state bureaucrat in Beijing. You can see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, and you're second guessing. The last thing you want to do is get wrapped on the knuckle for an overly liberal attitude towards American films. Is it just American films? Or are they doing the same with with, with European and other Asian films? Well, they only let in about 34 foreign films a year. And wow, almost 34? 34. And almost all of them... Around? How did you get to that number? It's not 34 and a half, right? Uh, no, but they have been known to let in more at times. And last year they let in fewer. You mean sometimes so 35? I, sometimes 35. Some, I think they've got up to 36. I mean, how did they come to that number? Um, it was negotiated between... Joe Biden and Xi Jinping back in 2012, I think it was because China wanted 20 and Hollywood wanted 40. I, I mean, they, they, they landed right. on that number because they had to meet in the middle somewhere. And, um, and, but well, which is to say there are other non-Chinese films that come into China. It's just America really accounts for well, Aaron, it. Aaron, you work at the Wall Street Journal. I figured there'd be a way you'd blame Joe Biden for everything. I'm teasing you. Um, Wrong, wrong department. Wrong department. Yeah, the editorial at the Journal is actually very good, actually much better than the New York Times. Um, we are speaking with um, Eric Schwartzel, the author of a really interesting new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, which I think is probably more about China than Hollywood. And, and I think it's more interesting in terms of China than Hollywood. Uh, and after the break, Eric, we're going to stop for about 60 seconds. I want to come back and talk about the cultural politics in China, what's really going on, what people are thinking, um, and how we're to make sense of much as what is happening in China. You're a good observer of that. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back with Eric uh, Schwartzel, the author of Red Carpet, in 60 short seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page, 
um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Eric Schwartzel, the author of Red Carpet, a very interesting new book um, about uh, Hollywood, China, and the global battle for cultural supremacy. That truly is a global battle, although, again, one sometimes gets the sense that it's a, it's a one-sided war. The Chinese are involved and the Americans are either disinterested or looking inward, navel-gazing as they're so good at doing. Um, one area that, Eric, you write about in, in some interesting detail in the book is the movie business as a, a piece of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. It's a global initiative, and the Chinese are bent on, if not global cultural domination, certainly global cultural influence. So how does the this, this Hollywood-Chinese conflict play into the Belt and Road Initiative on the part of the Japanese? Yeah, I thought this was one of the more fascinating elements of, of the reporting, which is that as, as you know, there's been quite a bit of ink spilled on the Belt and Road Initiative when it comes to the infrastructure spend and the uh, the bridges, the ports, the, this, all the, the various kinds of deals that China is striking with these countries around the world. Particularly in Africa is sort of symbolic in many ways. I'm not sure how much of it it's made up in Africa, but Africa seems yeah. to be so interesting. Absolutely, for, for a number of reasons. And I actually went to Kenya while I was reporting this book and spent some time in in these villages that really, frankly, overnight received um, massive Chinese investments in the form of a train station or um, ports, uh, all kinds of different things just appeared almost out of nowhere, Chinese workers appearing out of nowhere. But what was fascinating to learn is that the that China understands that it also has to introduce itself in some form or fashion, and it's trying to use entertainment to do that. And it's primarily doing that through, in Africa, I would say, it's primarily doing that through this initiative called the 10,000 Villages Project, which is a Chinese initiative to distribute low-cost satellite dishes to Chinese villages, or I'm sorry, to African villages. And so I, I have to say, like, one of the most startling and, and surprising moments of reporting this book involved walking into a an apartment outside Nairobi on a Saturday afternoon and seeing a family watching a Chinese soap opera and then going to another village and walking into their movie theater and talking to the owner of the movie theater and learning that the most popular thing he could possibly show every weekend were Jet Li movies. Um, there was this kind of acceptance of Chinese entertainment 
that was on par with the country and these people's previous acceptance of American entertainment. Yeah, and in an odd way, this this Chinese initiative of providing this the the satellite dishes, the infrastructure, essentially in exchange for distributing their culture, is 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 like what Facebook was doing in India, giving out the mm. free internet, but essentially presenting the internet as face, uh, pres- making Facebook appear as if it's the internet, so you're locked in. But whereas in the Facebook model, it was a private company in China, it's coming from the state. It's a great analogy. And, and I think there's another one in Africa specifically that is um, that involves sort of the British colonialism. And mm. um, I knew you'd it, bring that up, Eric. <laughs> no, I swear it's not it's not not targeted your at German any, background, not targeted at anyone here. But it was fascinating to learn about this system. I think it was in uh, Nigeria that reminded me quite a bit of the the Ten Thousand Villages project that would involve uh, installing these loudspeakers in certain African communities where they would broadcast, uh, you know, lectures and talks and shows from the British Empire. They would do it in English so that, as I think one scholar put it, it was addressing the audience in the language of their future benefactor. And and then there would also even be um, these segments that they would do about the glories of British infrastructure or why water management in England was the best in the world. And, and I thought of that whenever I was in Kenya, because I would be watching TV with these families and we'd be watching like a Chinese soap opera. And then they would start showing like a really boring, dry talking head documentary. About right. the so history. it's like, it's more like the old Soviet model, which of course failed. Speaking of the Brits, we did a, a good show recently on Winston Churchill with Jeffrey mm. Wheatcroft, Churchill's shadow, which is a kind of critique of Churchill, but acknowledges that Churchill told a very good story, particularly the ability to tell a good story in 39 and 40, which made him this world historical figure. Um, Churchill understood how to tell the story of democracy, which is perhaps one of the reasons why the British, or at least the West, was so successful in the Cold War. What kind of story are the Chinese telling about China itself? I did a speech at the United Nations a few years ago on tech, um, and there was a very, I, I got a very strong sense that the Chinese model of strong, effective authoritarianism is a much more effective one than the chaos, the anarchy of American and British democracy. Mm. Uh, Are the Chinese honestly distributing the story of a kind of uh, effective authoritarian technocracy alongside the free gear and the television shows and maybe the free food? Yeah, it depends on where you look. I think... When I would talk to, let's just say, everyday Kenyans, people who are watching the satellite dishes, I would ask them, you know, what do you think of China? What do you think China's like? And the word that they would say time and time again was developed. It is a developed country um, because everything they watched that took place in China was only showing a country of sprawling brand new metropolises. Um, There's some truth to that, Eric, isn't it? Compared oh yeah, to no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, totally, totally. But 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 um, I think it was a very different conversation if you talk to Kenyan officials. Um, I, I had this really sort of incredible afternoon talking to a Kenyan official who was in charge of his country's 
entertainment system and and sort of their Kenya's film minister. Um, and while I was talking to him, this was in January of 2020, Donald Trump was being impeached for the first time. And he had CNN on in his office while we were talking. And that was what was being featured on CNN. And he looked at me as the American reporter and said, you know, is this does this really look like the cleanest model to you? Um, and so I think that that sort of chaos versus order is very much a, a kind of a positioning that China wants to encourage. What about um, the um, the cultural component of this, Eric? We, I've had a number of shows on what uh, what's called dismantling global white privilege, white racism, and that seems to be an ideology very much now coming out of China. I'm not so sure if it's formally coming out of China. I had the Malaysian geostrategic thinker Chandran Nair on the show talking about this. I always got the sense he's a bit of an apologist for the Chinese. Also, mm -hmm. uh, my old friend uh, Kishore Mabubani, who doesn't uh, isn't shy to, to articulate the superiority of the Chinese model over the American model. Uh, it, are the kind of is Chinese thinking and Chinese cultural products are they pushing on the idea of American whiteness and racism against mm. black and brown and Asian peoples? It comes up occasionally. I think um, maybe I, I've I've always interpreted it as less about race and more about the chaos versus order and maybe also from like from the chinese perspective maybe from a place of accusing the us of hypocrisy um certainly back in the 60s during the civil war or i'm sorry civil war my the civil rights era um chinese propaganda very often free very frequently featured the plight of black americans in those images and in those messages as kind of a way of saying like you know, if you think America is that great, like imagine being a black man in America today. It's not. Which know, was a fair point, perhaps, certainly then and maybe even now. Right. And I think um, after uh, the George Floyd uh, protests swept the country, I think we saw some Chinese state media, which is affiliated with the government, highlighting these stories to its own people as a way of drawing that contrast. Like I said, I'm not sure how much of that is driven by race per se, and more just as having a chance to call sort of signal to the Chinese people that America is not the utopia that they might think it is. Um, and certainly for certain kinds of certain kinds of people, you know, it's interesting, like, do you remember that movie last year that came out Nomadland? Um, yeah, Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao and 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 before she brilliant had, film and actually the author of Nomad Lamb was on on the show. She's she's a lovely writer and and and, and conversationalist. Oh really? I really offend and it was just such an impressive film. And but before that movie kind of came into the crosshairs of of Chinese officials because of Chloe Zhao's comments about the country, that movie specifically was cited as. A, an exploration of how America's capitalist system leaves its most vulnerable people behind. So I think that you're right that Chinese leaders, and especially from the from the propaganda perspective, are not are always looking for ways to expose like an underbelly of life in America, or at least draw that contrast where they can to show that it's not all roses over here. 
It's interesting that you bring up Chloe Zhao. She's in the news. The other big event of the weekend is the uh, Super Bowl on on Sunday, the day before Valentine's Day. Maybe we those two events should go together. But um, the headline is Zhao directs is directing Budweiser's return to the Super Bowl ad. But Zhao is essentially banned from China. Is this wise policy on the part of the Chinese to keep out the most talented Chinese-American artists? It's really drastic. I mean, before her comments, let's just bring people up to speed. Um, whenever she was uh, getting all of this acclaim for Nomadland last year, comments that Chloe Zhao had made in 2012, I believe, about growing up in China that were critical of the country were resurfaced and spread throughout the Chinese internet. And this woman who at one point was considered the pride of China and China's really just best chance at having a Chinese born director stand and accept the best picture Oscar on the Academy Award stage. All of that was completely scrubbed from the Chinese internet because of these old comments. And I think there's certainly a, a Streisand effect at play here because Reporters like me wrote about those comments because of China's response, and more people certainly saw those comments than otherwise would have um, without that response. But I also think that part of the Chinese authorities' playbook is to make these very public examples from time to time because they teach everyone a lesson about where the line is for acceptable discourse. Scrubbing Chloe Zhao, or other prominent international Chinese artists from history is, of course, deeply Orwellian thing to do, uh, coming out of Orwell's famous Ministry of Information or Truth. And there's certainly something very Orwellian, um, Eric, about the Chinese state. It seems as if they're using digital technology to really build an effective, workable 1984. We had the German um, journalist Kai Strittmatter on the show couple of years ago talking about this, and we've talked about it in lots of different ways. If China continues to build this digital Orwellian state where everyone is being watched and everyone is being rewarded for obedience and punished for uh, any kind of disobedience, can China really get away with being a player in the global battle for cultural supremacy in, in the way in which no one took the Russians very seriously during the Cold War? Yeah, that is the big question, and I think some would call it an Achilles heel. Um, I think there's a helpful... And the Greeks, of course, uh, were very good at uh, who invented the notion of the Achilles heel, saw uh, all, all stories in, in, in those kind of moral terms. Right, 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 right. And, and, and I think a lesson that China's learning in real time is that the best propaganda doesn't feel like propaganda. And the country there, especially since Mao, has really interpreted almost all art as being suffused with some kind of messaging. And I'm not it's sure... It's very old-fashioned, very sort of 20th century, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that that's what China is trying to figure out here. And there's actually a very helpful um, comparison to be made with what Korea has managed to do in the past yeah. few years with... Um, but not just K-pop, but movies like Parasite and shows like Squid Game, um, Korea has managed to pull off what I think Chinese leaders would really love to see. But then the key issue is that Chinese leaders would have never allowed a Squid Game to be made. 
But Chinese leaders have their eyes on bigger fish, maybe the Taiwan Strait. We, we had, uh, we've had lots of discussion about the importance of the South China Sea. If there is indeed, I hope there isn't, but if there is an international crisis or conceivably even some sort of war or military action, how is this going to impact on your narrative of um, Hollywood and, and, and um, Hollywood and, and China? Will it, will it formalize the divorce? Will it mean that China, Ch Chinese investors and Chinese cultural figures will have nothing to do with Hollywood and vice versa? It, it it well could and and I think that it would also if 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 the tensions escalated to the point of conflict, I think the studio executives would really have no choice but to turn their back on China. So far, I think the fact that we have not escalated to that degree has allowed a lot of studio chiefs to kind of skate by. Um, because even though there are often uh, these kind of flare-ups, you know, where where politicians on Democrats and Republicans get upset when they hear about certain kinds of censorship or self-censorship at the studio level, I think because it's not exactly a uh, sort of publicly defined or, or a sworn enemy that they're doing it to, those controversies tend to fade and, and the access to the Chinese market is retained. So I think some kind of aggression on China's part, especially when it would draw the U.S. into a conflict, would be could probably be the only thing that would push studio executives from this kind of no man's land that they're in right now. Or well, maybe nomad land, Eric. Uh, so yeah. Ch Chinese, the Chinese take Taiwan. They they um, they invade Taiwan, and Americans ban. Um, Chinese investors in Hollywood. Is that a good trade? I'm not sure. I mean, look, the, the investors, the investors aren't in Hollywood as much anymore right now. It's more. No, about... no I'm joking in terms of, you no. know, a lot of, people, a lot of people talk about soft power, but ultimately I'm not convinced soft power really means anything. And Oh, you're not? You're, you're kind of, you're, really? You don't, you don't think soft power exists or you just don't think it's, you don't think it's, as, you think it's I'm not convinced in the 21st century, certainly in 2022 or the 2020s that soft power seems to make much difference. I mean, America has, mm. I guess, still a lot of soft power. I'm not sure what it really even means, but it's the Russians and the Chinese who are, who are dominating the story, who are making up the next chapter in Ukraine and Taiwan. So we'll see mm. one final sort of, Perhaps alternative narrative is, you know, we always think in terms of bipolar bipolarity, China versus America, but there might be a third player here, Eric. What about the Indians and Bollywood, which is oh. a very vital, vibrant movie business? Uh, the Chinese-Indian relations, of course, are not good. Um, what kind of relations exist between Chinese investors and Bollywood and vice versa? There have been attempts as you know, as they have tried to deepen ties with India with the Belt and Road Initiative, there have been attempts to forge cultural ties at the same time. Really, what's fascinating is like if you want to chart how Chinese leaders feel towards certain countries, you can track their co-production treaties and how how much they want to make a movie with that country. Um, That's fascinating. So who, who's hot at the moment, Eric? Russia. Um, Russia is... Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I remember I went, when I was in Shanghai, I was at a uh, 
was staying at a hotel that got um, a couple Chinese newspapers. And I was reading one one morning and it, there was a story about how um, that day Vladimir Putin had sent Xi Jinping ice cream for his birthday. And then later that night, I went to a party that was being thrown for the first ever Russia Chinese co-production. Um, and it actually starred Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people. But um, it, it was sort of just as crystal clear an example of how these these relations with other countries are often reflected culturally as well as militarily or diplomatically. Um, all of which is to say, though, that with India, there was some attempt, especially in the earlier days of the Belt and Road Initiative, to forge deeper ties. And you saw some really clumsily made movies about cooperation between China and India start to be produced. The issue, I would say, with India and the Indian film market is that just traditionally it's been so robust, but it stays very local. Bollywood films don't tend to travel outside of India beyond diasporic Indian communities. And Indian audiences are so sated by Bollywood films that they've actually not been that um, receptive to foreign films from the US or any other country. Um, that's changing a little bit with streaming now. India is certainly seen as something of a final frontier for a lot of the studios that are trying to gobble up as many subscribers as possible. Um, but so far, it's Bollywood is this kind of fascinating outlier because it's this massive player. Yeah. But it has stayed mostly within its own borders. Eric, one final question, possibility. What about the potential for quote-unquote dissident filmmaking from within China state-financed movies that are uh, dissident in a highly sophisticated way, that the, some of the greatest movies ever made, of course, were made within Soviet Union, Tarkovsky, Poland, Vida, so many others in post-war Eastern Europe. Um, what is the state of domestic filmmaking in China? And could you imagine state-sponsored filmmakers able to make global masterpieces, which are in part at least critiques of the Chinese system? No, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it really is. The, the system is really pretty aggressive in policing against things like that. Of course, that kind of coloring within the lines, as you said, it has produced some real masterpieces. Um, and, and certainly interesting films are being made in China today. And um, some of them are traveling, some of them aren't. But we're also seeing China, what, what's been fascinating is China has learned how to put the pill in the peanut butter and keep a kind put of, rocket, put the what? pill in the peanut butter. You know how like, when you're trying to give oh, a dog I see. medicine? You mean, you're you know? getting someone to take their medicine and you put yeah, it in exactly, the Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so for a while, the, um, the only real kind of messaging that China would, would try to deliver was really medicinal and, and quite dry and, and therefore deadly boring. But we've seen now that they've watched enough Hollywood films to know that if they can try and package that messaging in an entertaining way, it's all the more effective. There's a story in my book about the, um, the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, coming out. It's a Revolutionary War story. And 
Sony trying to get the movie into Chinese theaters and officials there saying, well, the movie's not going to show in China, but can we hold on to it for a little bit? And mm. the executive says, oh, sure, yeah, but but why? And the Chinese official says, we wanted to know, we want to watch it so we can know how to make a good propaganda film. Mm. Well, I think that it is the biggest of all stories of the 21st, 20, 21st century is what will happen in China, whether they'll actually get away with building this highly effective Orwellian system or whether there'll be an internal rebellion. And I think, Eric, your, your new book kind of t touches on it. It's certainly a really interesting uh, and important book, uh, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. We never hide uh, our pills in our peanut butter on keen on, Eric. Um, what else should people be reading or watching in these strange times as Hollywood and China battle one another? Well, I actually, I have to, I have to be honest, when I was writing this book, I, I very deliberately didn't read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction because I thought that would be the much better Good. thing to, to, to be doing. Um, the best book I read last year was Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. Mm. Um, the best book I on the show. I don't know if I can, but if he's watching, Jonathan, you're more than welcome. Yeah, he's a tough get. Um, yeah, and I, he's obnoxious I, as well. He probably wouldn't be a great interview. <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have no word on that. I've met him at some signings, and he's been he's uh. been nice, but nice enough. But um, loved that book. Absolutely brilliant. The year before that, the best books I read were um, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. Yes, and um, Salvador by Joan Didion. Yeah, well, we can't get Didion, uh, but Vane uh, 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 has a chance I can get him. So that was, those are good, good, good suggestions, Eric, and it's a real delight to talk to you. Um, yeah, likewise. And congratulations on the book. Love to have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk more China and Hollywood. It's an important and interesting subject. Thank you so Anytime. much. Anytime. Thank you.